Chapter Twenty Seven of Rilla of Ingleside. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Rilla of Ingleside by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Chapter Twenty Seven Waiting. Part One. Ingleside, first November. 1917 it is november and the glen is all gray and brown except where the lombardy poplars stand up here and there like great golden torches in the somber landscape although every other tree has shed its leaves it has been very hard to keep our courage alight of late the caporetto disaster is a dreadful thing and not even susan can extract much consolation out of the present state of affairs the rest of us don't try. Gertrude keeps saying desperately, They must not get Venice, they must not get Venice, as if by saying it often enough she can prevent them. But what is to prevent them from getting Venice I cannot see. Yet, as Susan fails not to point out, there was seemingly nothing to prevent them from getting to Paris in 1914, yet they did not get it, and she affirms they shall not get Venice either. Oh, how I hope and pray they will not. Venice, the beautiful queen of the Adriatic. Although I've never seen it, I feel about it just as Byron did. I've always loved it. It has always been to me a fairy city of the heart. Perhaps I caught my love of it from Walter, who worships it. It was always one of his dreams to see Venice. I remember we planned it once, down in Rainbow Valley one evening just before the war broke out, that sometime we would go together to see it and float in a gondola through its moonlit streets every fall since the war began there has been some terrible blow to our troops antwerp in nineteen fourteen serbia in nineteen fifteen last fall romania and now italy the worst of all i think i would give up in despair if it were not for what walter said in his dear last letter that the dead as well as the living were fighting on our side and such an army cannot be defeated no it cannot we will win in the end i will not doubt it for one moment to let myself doubt would be to break faith we have all been campaigning furiously of late for the new victory loan we junior reds canvassed diligently and landed several tough old customers who had at first flatly refused to invest I, even I, tackled whiskers on the moon. I expected a bad time and a refusal, but to my amazement he was quite agreeable and promised on the spot to take a thousand-dollar bond. He may be a pacifist, but he knows a good investment when it is handed out to him. Five and a half percent is five and a half percent, even when a militaristic government pays it. Father, to tease Susan, says it was her speech at the Victory Loan campaign meeting that converted Mr. Pryor. I don't think that at all likely, since Mr. Pryor has been publicly very bitter against Susan, ever since her quite unmistakable rejection of his lover-like advances. But Susan did make a speech, and the best one made at the meeting too. It was the first time she ever did such a thing, and she vows it will be the last. Everybody in the Glen was at the meeting, and quite a number of speeches were made, but somehow things were a little flat, and no especial enthusiasm could be worked up. Susan was quite dismayed at the lack of zeal, because she had been burningly anxious that the island should go over the top in regard to its quota. 
she kept whispering viciously to Gertrude and me that there was no ginger in the speeches, and when nobody went forward to subscribe to the loan at the close, Susan lost her head. At least that is how she describes it herself. She bounded to her feet, her face grim and set under her bonnet. Susan is the only woman in Glen St. Mary who still wears a bonnet, and said sarcastically and loudly, No doubt it is much cheaper to talk patriotism than it is to pay for it, and we are asking charity, of course. We are asking you to lend us your money for nothing. No doubt the Kaiser will feel quite downcast when he hears of this meeting. Susan has an unshakable belief that the Kaiser spies, presumably represented by Mr. Pryor, promptly inform him of everything happening in our glen. Norman Douglas shouted out, Hear, hear, and some boy at the back said, What about Lloyd George? In a tone Susan didn't like. Lloyd George is her pet hero, now that Kitchener is gone. I stand behind Lloyd George every time, retorted Susan. I suppose that will hearten him up greatly, said Warren Mead, with one of his disagreeable haw-haws. Warren's remark was sparked to powder. Susan just sailed in, as she puts it, and said her say. She said it remarkably well, too. There was no lack of ginger in her speech, anyhow. When Susan is warmed up, she has no mean powers of oratory, and the way she trimmed those men down was funny and wonderful and effective all at once. She said it was the likes of her, millions of her, that did stand behind Lloyd George, that did hearten him up. That was the keynote of her speech. Dear old Susan. She is a perfect dynamo of patriotism and loyalty and contempt for slackers of all kind, and when she let loose on that audience in her one grand outburst, she electrified it. Susan always vows she is no suffragette, but she gave womanhood its due that night, and she literally made those men cringe. When she finished with them, they were ready to eat out of her hand. She wound up by ordering them, yes, ordering them, to march up to the platform forthwith and subscribe for victory bonds. And after wild applause, most of them did, even Warren Mead. When the total amount subscribed came out in the Charlottestown dailies the next day, we found that the Glen led every district on the island, and certainly Susan has the credit for it. She herself after she came home that night, was quite ashamed, and evidently feared that she had been guilty of unbecoming conduct. She confessed to Mother that she had been rather unladylike. We were all, except Susan, out for a trial ride in Father's new automobile tonight. A very good one we had, too, though we did get ingloriously ditched at the end, owing to a certain grim old dame, to wit, Miss Elizabeth Carr of the Upper Glen, who wouldn't rein her horse out to let us pass, honk as we might. Father was quite furious, but in my heart I believe I sympathised with Miss Elizabeth. If I had been a spinster lady driving along behind my old nag in maiden meditation fancy free, I wouldn't have lifted a rein when an obstreperous car hooted blatantly behind me. I should have sat up as dourly as she did and said, Take the ditch if you are determined to pass. We did take the ditch and got up to our axles in sand, and sat foolishly there, while Miss Elizabeth clucked up her horse and rattled victoriously away. Jem will have a laugh when I write him this. He knows Miss Elizabeth of old. But will Venice be saved? 19th November, 1917. It is not saved yet. It is still in great danger, but the Italians are making a stand at last on the Piave line. To be sure, military critics say they cannot possibly hold it, and must retreat to the Adige. 
but susan and gertrude and i say they must hold it because venice must be saved so what are the military critics to do oh if i could only believe that they can hold it our canadian troops have won another great victory they have stormed the passchendaele ridge and held it in the face of all counter-attacks none of our boys were in the battle but oh the casualty list of other people's boys joe milgrave was in it but came through safe miranda had some bad days until she got word of him but it is wonderful how miranda has bloomed out since her marriage she isn't the same girl at all even her eyes seem to have darkened and deepened though i suppose that is just because they glow with the greater intensity that has come to her she makes her father stand round in a perfectly amazing fashion she runs up the flag whenever a yard of trench on the western front is taken and she comes up regularly to our junior red cross and she does yes she does put on funny little married woman airs that are quite killing but she is the only war bride in the glen and surely nobody need grudge her the satisfaction she gets out of it the russian news is bad too kerensky's government has fallen and lenin is dictator of russia somehow it is very hard to keep up courage in the dull hopelessness of these grey autumn days of suspense and boding news but we are beginning to get in a low as old highland sandy says over the approaching election conscription is the real issue at stake and it will be the most exciting election we ever had all the women who have got the age to quote joe poirier and who have husbands sons and brothers at the front can vote oh if i were only twenty-one gertrude and susan are both furious because they can't vote it is not fair gertrude says passionately there is agnes carr who can vote because her husband went she did everything she could to prevent him from going and now she is going to vote against the union government yet i have no vote because my man at the front is only my sweetheart and not my husband as for susan when when she reflects that she cannot vote while a rank old pacifist like mr pryor can and will her comments are sulphurous i really feel sorry for the elliots and crawfords and mcallisters over harbour they have always lined up in clearly divided camps of liberal and conservative and now they are torn from their moorings i know i'm mixing my metaphors dreadfully and set hopelessly adrift it will kill some of those old grits to vote for sir robert gordon's side and yet they have to because they believe the time has come when we must have conscription and some poor conservatives who are against conscription must vote for laurier who always has been anathema to them some of them are taking it terribly hard others seem to be in much the same attitude as mrs marshall elliott has come to be regarding church union she was up here last night she doesn't come as often as she used to she is growing too old to walk this far dear old miss cornelia i hate to think of her growing old we have always loved her so and she has always been so good to us ingleside young fry she used to be so bitterly opposed to church union but last night when father told her it was practically decided she said in a resigned tone well in a world where everything is being rent and torn what matters one more rending and tearing anyhow compared with germans even methodists seem attractive to me our junior r c goes on quite smoothly in spite of the fact that irene has come back to it having fallen out with the lowbridge society i understand she gave me a sweet little jab last meeting about knowing me across the square in charlottestown by my green velvet hat everybody knows me by that detestable and detested hat this will be my fourth season for it even mother wanted me to get a new one this fall but i said no as long as the war lasts so long do i wear that velvet hat in winter 23rd november 1917
the Piave line still holds, and General Bing has won a splendid victory at Cambrai. I did run up the flag for that, but Susan only said, I shall set a kettle of water on the kitchen range tonight. I noticed little Kitchener always has an attack of croup after any British victory. I do hope he has no pro-German blood in his veins. Nobody knows much about his father's people. Jims has had a few attacks of croup this fall, just the ordinary croup, not that terrible thing he had last year. But whatever blood runs in his little veins, it is good, healthy blood. He is rosy and plump and curly and cute, and he says such funny things and asks such comical questions. He likes very much to sit in a special chair in the kitchen. But that is Susan's favourite chair, too, and when she wants it, out Jims must go. The last time she put him out of it, he turned around and asked solemnly, When you are dead, Susan, can I sit in that chair? Susan thought it quite dreadful, and I think that was when she began to feel anxiety about his possible ancestry. The other night I took Jims with me for a walk down to the store. It was the first time he had ever been out so late at night, and when he saw the stars he exclaimed, Oh, Willa, see the big moon and all the little moons? And last Wednesday morning when he woke up, my little alarm clock had stopped because I had forgotten to wind it up. Jims bounded out of his crib and ran across to me, his face quite aghast above his little blue flannel pyjamas. The clock is dead, he gasped. Oh, Willa, the clock is dead. One night he was quite angry with both Susan and me because we would not give him something he wanted very much. When he said his prayers, he plumped down wrathfully, and when he came to the petition, make me a good boy, he tacked on emphatically, and please make Willa and Susan good, because they're not. I don't go about quoting Jims's speeches to all I meet. That always bores me when other people do it. I just enshrine them in this old hotchpotch of a journal. This very evening, as I put Jims to bed, he looked up and asked me gravely, Why can't yesterday come back, Willa? Oh, why can't it, Jims, that beautiful yesterday of dreams and laughter, when our boys were home, when Walter and I read and rambled and watched new moons and sunsets together in Rainbow Valley, if it could just come back. But yesterday's never come back, little Jims, and the todays are dark with clouds, and we dare not think about the tomorrows. End of chapter 27 Part 1